Hello and welcome to the Toast podcast with me, Laura Barton. For our second series, The Unknown Path, I'm meeting six different authors, actors and naturalists to discuss the various and often unexpected routes their lives have taken. There is a corner of East London, not so very far from the river, where the streets are loaded with history, political, cultural, industrial. I've come here to Cable Street to meet the writer and historian Cassia Sinclair, whose interest in this area is rooted in an unassuming brick building, where, over a hundred years ago, a scientific experiment gone awry led to a major manufacturing breakthrough. In writing her first book, The Secret Lies of Colour, Cassia drew together such historical threads in order to tell the stories of 75 unusual hues, from amber to absinthe and purple to puce. We're standing on a very windy street corner and uh, Cassia, could you please read for us that blue plaque above our heads? Yes, of course. So it's a plaque commemorating uh, Sir William Henry Perkin, who discovered the first aniline dye stuff in March 1856 while working in his home laboratory on this site and went on to found science-based industry. And he lived from 1838 to 1907. So we're in a slightly strange part of East London, not to offend anybody in East London, but um, it feels like a little enclave, a little quiet corner, really. We're not far from the river. What is it that's significant about this part of London, Cassia, for the world of colour and fabric? So, yes, it it is a bit of a a funny corner of East London. It's not particularly colourful. We're kind of sandwiched here. It's all concretey and and maybe not particularly inspiring. And yet it's from this site that the world first gained access to this incredible new wave of aniline dyes that really completely democratised colour in a way. So um, beforehand, particularly in dye stuffs, but also in paint, colour was often quite elusive and could be incredibly expensive. And yet uh, this was a time when there were many scientific discoveries. But this particular discovery right here in 1856 by um, an 18-year-old, you know, the blue plaque kind of glosses over both how young William Henry Perkin um, was, but also the fact that he was just kind of messing around in his father's attic. And yet from these experiments, completely accidentally, he discovered a new branch of science that led to the creation of so many different colours. He was actually trying to synthesise quinine, uh, which is a, a malaria cure. What he found instead at the bottom of one of his test tubes on this day in March in 1856 was a kind of um, bluey purple sludge. And um, rather than throwing it away, he dipped a piece of cloth into this sludge and found that what he had created completely accidentally was a new colour fast purple dye. Previously the dyeing industry had relied on crushing up beetles or finding um, the roots of plants Um, but this was something, this colour was created entirely artificially. So in effect did the world become more colourful from that moment on? Did did everybody start wearing more colourful clothing? It's fair to say that colour was sort of more broadly um, and cheaply available 
and there were f- um, fewer problems in the production chain I guess so while if there was a particularly bad drought um, all the dye plants might you know have a bad year in the same way that you might have a bad year with, with wine today for example but you know this was something that was much more stable and so suddenly things are much more controllable and you've got a lot more colours widely available to more people. Was purple the big hit? Was that the because it had those regal connotations? So purple was um, a very sort of fortuitous colour for him to hit upon first because it had these royal associations and because he was changing the way the industry worked, it really helped to have powerful backers. And so the fact that this colour um, was beloved of um, Queen Victoria, who actually wore a, a mauve dress to the wedding of one of her daughters, it really caught the public's imagination. When he first created it, there was a real problem in trying to get... Um, dye companies and and retailers of fabrics to believe in this new dye because they were so used to working with traditional materials Um, but having this sort of royal backing in the same way that you know a royal wearing something now can can change the fortunes of a company this is what happened for William. And we are in East London which was sort of the home of, of the fabric industry wasn't it of the cloth industry? historically. Yes, so um, Spitalfields is, is not too far away, probably about half a mile. You know, everyone thinks of Spitalfields weavers, um, which had sort of wave upon wave of, of, of immigrants coming in with skills in particular types of weaving. And so it did have a real um, ingrained history of high quality fabric production. How did you come to write about colour, Cassia, and fabric as well? So I think I've, I've always um, loved colour. One of my earliest memories my mother was a a florist and I remember that I would come home from school and just sit in in her flower shop while she closed up and and I would be given sort of the little offshoots of bouquets to play with so I would take these little flowers that were bruised or weren't good enough to be put in proper bouquets and I would make little bouquets or posies out of them that would then um, be quote unquote sold which I totally believed at the time but now I probably realised they weren't really being sold at all but I would be given sort of 20 peas next time I came in and I I loved that and, and she was very creative and obviously colour mixing was part of what she did and so that was definitely something that you know really sticks with me in terms of my love of colour but on an academic um, basis I, I later went on to university and I studied women's uh, history particularly what women wore to masquerade balls in the 18th century which is very niche um, but this involved a lot of reading of, of newspapers and diaries and letters there was this real language of colour and also of cloth being used in these letters in these accounts that was really sort of understood but had had also sort of disappeared in the intervening time. You know, the colours, names that they were using that were sort of the height of fashion in the 18th century are no longer colours that we would recognise either as being fashionable or even existing. You know, hair brown um, was one of the, the classics. And I, and I would go down these little sort of research rabbit holes trying to work out exactly what these colours um, might have looked like, but also wondering about the, the cloth. You know, they had this real deep, knowledge about different types of of silk and jacquards and and weaves and where the cloth was coming from they had this incredible deep knowledge of an interest you know really for a, a party outfit and I found this 
astonishing and this led me um, later on when I was um, working full-time as a journalist to pitch the idea for a column about colour and the idea was that I would sort of do a little character sketch of each shade, um, how it was made, when it was fashionable, where it came from and the book kind of came from that. (laughs) Were there any apart from hair brown or in fact maybe you should tell us about hair brown. What colour is hair brown? How was it made? Where was it worn? Uh, that is, is still a mystery. Uh, still, I'm still on the lookout for a visual source. I have looked for portraits um, and letters about portraits to see if anyone's you know, been helpful enough to say, today I was painted by Reynolds wearing my favourite hair brown police, but um, no such luck. It's the one that gets away. <laughs> Any other particular favourites that stood out? Uh, yeah, so there was a, a colour that I found really fun to chase around, and that was pea green, which is rather more recognisable but it was hugely fashionable in the 18th century. But one of the kind of early fashion magazines, I guess, called um, Ackerman's Repository, they had a kind of a columnist who wrote about fashion trends. And P. Green, he just hated it. I'm, I'm presuming it's a he from the way that he wrote. But this columnist just disliked pea green and several you know ladies would would wear it to um, particular events and then he would be sort of saying how revolting it looked how bad it made how bad it looked on everyone and so I love the fact that it aroused such strong passions but I also love the fact that you know obviously people were just completely ignoring this this columnist people wanted to wear what they wanted to wear and whether he or, or she thought it looked good or not that didn't matter to them. So what is the pathway of a colour? Where does it start and how does it end up in our shops? So pink seems to have dominated everywhere for the past couple of years. Why is that? Where did it begin? Where will it go next? In a lot of ways, actually, it's fairly similar to how it was in Perkins' day in that we're we're very influenced by influencers you know in 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 his case it was royalty it was it was queen victoria picking up on a on a color but for us today very often we're influenced by things that we um, see you know on social media or on instagram or on, on people around us and that's how kind of these color trends can come to completely dominate in really surprising quite sudden ways I, I think what's what's really changed is how fast um, this can happen now and how intense it can be which is rather unfortunate for the color in question I think because I think it's a little bit like listening to a, a hit song that you just can't escape and you, wherever you go it's on the radio and you end up kind of completely falling out of love with it and you sort of sicken of it and I think that's the problem for really fashionable colors it becomes completely saturated the market becomes completely saturated with a shade you know millennial pink or a bright yellow that's been very much in evidence recently and you end up getting tired of it quite quickly then you don't want to wear it anymore and it begins to pull and those garments or items that you you brought in that shade when it was the height of fashion um, you want to kind of dispose of I think if you're a colour today you'd want to be one that never quite catches the public imagination and so, so just sort of bumbles along without ever becoming too fashionable or too unfashionable When you were writing the book, and even now, has it altered how you see the world? If you're walking through South London, are you seeing colours differently? Are you thinking, oh, that's, you know, whatever brown from 19th century, whatever? Or has it just remained the same? Have you always done something similar? I've definitely um, always loved colour, and I I don't notice the effect 
of having written The Secret Lives of Colour so much on my behaviour with The Golden Thread, which is a book about fabric. You know, that really dramatically changed my perceptions of, of fabric. But something that has had a big effect on the way that I perceive colour is Instagram. And I definitely am more aware of the beautiful colour combinations that I come across in day-to-day life, mostly because now I've got a way of, of sharing them. You know, when I see sort of two front doors next to each other that have really sort of pleasingly complementary um, colours, you know, you could just take out your phone, snap them and share them and and hopefully everyone else likes them as well but I think that's had sort of almost more of an impact on me than than writing the book because I think I've always been interested in colour and you know researched it in a sort of really deep way and I follow lots of people who are interested in in colour in in various ways and I love seeing what they're interested in what their predictions are for um, the future of colour it's also nice to follow that sort of seasonal path or thread through the year isn't it you know at the moment as we're recording it's it's blue skies and it's signs of spring and those kinds of colours are coming out aren't they yes I think that's one of the reasons why I find English winters so tricky is the sort of dearth of of colour and suddenly like you say it's spring and there's a lot more colour around and it feels like you know, the volume on the world's been turned up in a way. Are there parts of the world then that, that are maybe warmer that feel like home to you colour-wise? There are definitely places that I've been to where I've just been really captivated by the colours. So something, you know, there's a city sort called San Cristobal in Mexico and I don't quite know how to describe it, but it's just got the most incredible quality of light Um, different from anywhere else that I've ever been it feels incredibly clear and the colours that you see there on the buildings and and the sky and you know everything uh, are just you know intense um, and very saturated but incredibly harmonious and and beautiful too. You mentioned about writing about fabric and how that had changed how you consumed fabric or bought fabric or wore it I I suppose. Um, I just found it astonishing that I was you know, consuming fabric as much as anyone else and yet had very little knowledge of, of where it was coming from and also you know there are questions that I became really intrigued with so um, spider silk why don't we use spider silk well that's you know that forms the basis of my final chapter in the book but to answer your question as to how it really changed I think it made me question a lot more the items of fabric that I use on a day-to-day basis it made me want to really value them a lot more and it made me think a lot more about the choices that I want to make when I'm consuming fabric but you know the complexity of these supply chains now are very make it very hard for consumers to know exactly where their clothing is coming from and that's incredible in a way because it makes you think a little bit more about all the the hands through which this you know garment or item has passed and the the care and attention that might have gone into it but it also makes it very difficult to trace people are thinking more about that now but I also think you know it's a long journey back in a way because I think to really value textiles properly it means having some knowledge of how they're made and how long it takes and the qualities of the um, fibre that you're investing in so for example linen is this incredible 
textile because it conducts heat away from the skin. And also another amazing thing about linen is that it becomes softer with wear. And the ancient Egyptians really valued that wear, valued the sort of the provenance of a, of a particular linen textile. You know, the previous owners, the names of the previous owners might be sort of embroidered on a, a corner of, of a particular textile. And that gave it more value rather than less. And I, and I love that idea. It's an obvious question and a silly question maybe, but do you have a favourite colour? and a favourite fabric? I think um, the, the colours and the fabric that I often come back to are the ones that I sort of used perhaps to convince um, publishers and friends um, that, this, that these were books that they should that were worth publishing and that th these are books that are worth reading and so for the colour that's ultramarine which is just the most incredible and beautiful and appealing blue in and of itself but it also has a wonderful story you know it's made from um, lapis lazuli and almost all the ultramarine that you see in western art um, the lapis lazuli comes from a, sort of a single source which is a, a mine in northeastern Afghanistan and it had to be sort of transported all the way across the silk routes to the Mediterranean and then would be shipped to Venice and from there it would sort of be um, trace its, its, its lines throughout Europe to get to the artists who would end up using it and I just think that's an incredible story about the power of colour, the desire that artists have for a particular um, pigment and how it could, could drive them. Cassie, when you look back over your own life and the choices you've made from, from the degree you chose to becoming a journalist and, and then choosing to write about colour, does that make sense when you look back at it or, or does it seem as if you just chose those routes in the moment? I think like most human beings, I love finding patterns. And so when I look back, some of the choices look very obvious and it looks like that sort of path was laid out for me. But I also wonder about moments where there were natural forks and I ended up taking one or the other. But I'm very pleased that I've ended up where I am. I'm, I'm very happy that I get to tell stories. And I also love researching, you know, colour and topics that maybe people overlook. And I love finding the magic in it. And that's something that I really love sharing. You've been listening to The Toast Podcast with me, Laura Barton. The producer is Jeff Bird, and the series was conceived by Emily Mears. You can subscribe to the Toast podcast via your usual podcast provider or listen on Toast magazine, which can be found via the Toast website, www.toa.st. Our third series will be launching in autumn.